All right, good morning. Get my glasses on. Okay. Well, it's been a long time since I've taught on a Sunday, and although I'm really nervous, I'm also very thankful to have this opportunity. We're going to be continuing our series in the book of Matthew and looking at Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 through 42, which will bring us to the end of the chapter that we've been in the past couple weeks. But first, a quick disclaimer before we get into our text this morning. I've been told that I preach with my hands, which makes sense since I'm Italian. A few people have even told me that when I get passionate and I'm trying to make a point when I'm preaching, that my right arm starts moving like this. In a way that could make people feel condemned or possibly like I'm preaching down at you. And I just want to let you know that's not my intention. It really is not my intention. Even though I'm up here today, I'm really with you sitting in the congregation. And I'm going to do my best to be mindful of this today. I was even tempted to duct tape my arm to the side of my body so it doesn't move. Or I'll try and preach like most Italians who use both of their arms when they talk. But then I remembered I'm only half Italian. (laughs) And that's probably why I preach with one arm. I think this right side of me is the Italian side. So just kind of work with me this morning. So with that said, the title of the message is Persecution, rejection, and the joy of following Jesus. If you have your Bibles this morning, open them up to Matthew chapter 10, and we'll be looking at verses 32 through 42. Jesus is speaking here, and he says, starting in verse 32. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father... A daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross And follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person 
will receive a righteous person's reward. And, it, and if anyone gives a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. This is God's word. Let's pray. Jesus, just in reading these words, these sobering, radical, heavy words, yet very beautiful words, because these words, when your people obey them, bring life. These words bring joy. And God, I just humble myself before you and my brothers and sisters. And I just, in a sense, offer this message to you like two fishes and two loaves, in a sense. And I just ask, would you bless it? Would you multiply it? Would you use it for your glory? Would you use it in such a way to cause my brothers and sisters this morning to respond to your love, to respond to your grace, that they might find joy in following you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in light of us being in chapter 10 for a couple weeks, I thought it would be a good idea to quickly review the past couple weeks before we get into the text this morning. Our text this morning is birthed from compassion. The heart of Jesus who was filled with compassion. Remember in Matthew chapter 9 verse 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Compassion means he felt for the people. Jesus was moved with compassion. Moved with compassion towards the people. And then Jesus went on to say to his disciples in verses 37 and 38 of Matthew 9, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus was pulling his disciples into his compassion for the world by asking them to pray about the harvest. Now in chapter 10, Jesus sends them into the harvest to serve and represent him as his ambassadors, as those who are sent. It's clear, moving from chapter 9 into chapter 10 of Matthew, that the disciples are transitioning from a place of watching to a place of working. Because of their sentness, they are thinking differently about stuff and about intentionality. In last week's message, Britt talked about three things that Jesus was telling the disciples that apply to us as disciples. One, to live intentionally calling them to leave certain things behind and look for certain things. Two, to be looking for and aware of open doors and opportunities to discover what God is up to and doing in their sphere of influence. Three, the fact that under no uncertain terms, that mission 
always draws opposition. That mission always draws opposition. It always draws persecution and rejection. As a way of reminder, in 2 Timothy 3.12 says, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is a sure promise. And this is definitely a promise you're not going to find in a Bible promise book. If we desire to live a godly life, we will be persecuted. In our text this morning, we'll get a better idea of persecution and rejection as followers of Jesus and how the text applies to us. Although our experience may be different, the text still speaks to us today. Thankfully, the text as a whole is not just about persecution. It's not just about rejection. The text is about mission and the joy I'll say it again, and the joy of following Jesus. Jesus said in verses 32 and 33 of Matthew chapter 10, Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. So first and foremost, everyone Jesus called he called openly and publicly. Jesus said, Peter, drop your net and follow me. James and John, leave your boat and follow me. Matthew, leave your tax booth and follow me. Hey, Zacchaeus, come down out of that tree and follow me. As followers, we must acknowledge we must confess Jesus publicly before men, before friends, family, co-workers, strangers. There is no such thing as a secret Christian. We're not called as Christians to keep our faith in Christ on the DL, on the down low. We can't overlook or take lightly the verses 32 and 33 states the importance of open confession of Jesus Christ. Confession doesn't save, but it's the natural result of salvation. When you are truly saved, born of God's Spirit, you can't help but confess. You can't help but testify. You can't help but give praise to Jesus openly and publicly. You just can't. One of our first ways we publicly identify ourselves with Jesus is through baptism. We identify ourselves with Jesus symbolically in His death, burial, and resurrection. And although baptism doesn't save us, Jesus did command us to be baptized. It's an act of obedience, and it's a powerful testimony of us as believers identifying, declaring, and acknowledging that we are followers of Jesus, that I belong to Jesus. In general, as Christians in America, I don't think we really understand the significance of baptism and how it relates to identifying ourselves as followers of Jesus. 
During the time and culture of Jesus, and even today in Middle Eastern culture or other parts of the world, to be baptized as a Christian is so significant that could very well mean death or for some, at a minimum, intense persecution. Because someone in Middle Eastern culture that comes out publicly and says, I am a follower of Jesus and I am going to identify myself with Jesus as a follower of Jesus. They've got a target on their back. It's that significant. Today we as Christians are culturally in lots of ways being asked to deny Jesus. To deny the name of Jesus. To keep our faith in Christ on the DL. Especially in the workplace or even now in all aspects of the public square. Yes, it looks radically different for us than it looks for those in different parts of the world. It looks different, and yet we do wrestle with this. For some of us, we deny Jesus because in our culture today, we love the approval of men. And we know Jesus today in our culture is not going to win a popularity contest. We live in a very me-centered, egocentric, self-absorbed world. And social media has a huge role in this. Just take a look at someone's Instagram or Facebook and it pretty much says, look at me. Take a look at me. And I'm not bagging on that. But most Instagrams and most Facebooks are usually about me. Social media all the more has played into our greatest fear. The fear of being rejected. We love the approval of men and we have a strong desire to be accepted and that's why being unfriended on Facebook or not getting likes on Instagram causes some of us to feel rejected, which is very, very real to many of us in many ways, though maybe different and radically different for people in other parts of the world. But believe it or not, for some of us, This can feed into the temptation for us to deny Jesus. There are all sorts of ways, little ways, in which, in our lives, in which we can start to deny or not acknowledge or not confess Jesus before others. The word acknowledge means to affirm, to agree with, to identify with, which touches every area of our lives. For example, as Christians, we can find ourselves in unrighteous circumstances or unrighteous context, maybe at work or amongst friends, where we should say something in relation to the righteous standard of God, but we don't. Is that in some way denying Christ in that moment? There are other times when we have open doors to proclaim or share the gospel, and we don't. Is that in some way denying Christ in that moment? There are opportunities at school, at work, in our places of recreation when we have an opportunity to say that we are Christians, that we are followers of Jesus, and we don't. Is that some way denying Christ in that moment? We as Christians most likely will deny Jesus to our, because of our fear 
of being rejected, being rejected by friends or family members or acquaintances, possibly being rejected or passed over for a job promotion because of our faith in Christ. That's very real to us in this American culture. And yet with the challenges we have as Christians in today's culture, how must we choose to acknowledge, to affirm, to agree with, to identify with Jesus in this life, in this place, at this time, in our spaces and places of influence with the things that we face? This is not always easy. And it will not be getting any easier in the times in which we are living. We are living in uncertain times. And the days are evil. When people are calling evil good and good evil. And in the times in which we're living, we would all testify we are living in really uncertain times. So we must first stand firm. For us as believers, the first thing, we need to stand firm, which requires us to be filled with the Holy Spirit and people of the Word of God. For you and I as believers to stand firm, first and foremost, we need to be men and women full of the Holy Spirit and the power of God working in our lives and through our lives, which means also we must be people of God's Word. And secondly, we need to remember that it's, not, it's no longer about us. It's no longer about me. It's no longer about us, but about Jesus. That we might live for Him and live for His glory. As it says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is a glorious truth. This is a glorious reality that Jesus loved you, that Jesus loved me and gave himself for you. And he gave himself for me. That is a radical beautiful, incredible reality which should cause us to think, cause me to think, why am I ever ashamed of Jesus? This is what's happening when we don't speak up when we should. Or when we don't stand up and be counted as a Christian and instead shrink back out of fear of rejection. Or when we think more about our reputation or our ego than we should at the moment. Strange that we should ever be ashamed of Jesus. It's strange that there are times that we or I don't want to identify ourselves as followers of Jesus. And I get it. I personally get it. There are times in my life I have not spoken up when I should have. There are times I have not stood up and made myself counted as a Christian. And times, more often than not, that I have shrunk back 
out of a fear of rejection. And all the more in those times, I was not in the spirit. And how I desperately need to be a man full of the Holy Spirit with the word of God hidden in my heart. And yet, and yet Jesus, he will publicly identify himself with us, his church. When he comes on that glorious day, on that last day in all his glory, he will identify himself with us. And he has identified himself with us. He's identified himself with our humanity. He has identified himself with our sin on the cross. And for those who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he has taken our sin and he's given us his righteousness. So all the more we should never be ashamed of Jesus We should be living out our identity in him. We should be living out our identity in Jesus. As Christians, we need to make sure we get this identity thing figured out. And I I mean this soberly as I've been thinking through this, this flow of the passage. First and foremost, we need to get this identity thing right. Because some challenging times are coming just around the corner. Not only in the text before us, in the flow of the text, it's not coincidence that Jesus first addressed addressed identity, and then he's going to flow into these other radical things. But most likely in the days ahead in which we are living, things are radically changing, and we live in uncertain times. So all the more, we need to get this identity thing right and who we are in Christ. As Jesus goes on to say in verses 34 through 36 of Matthew chapter 10, Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Verses 34 through 36 indicate indicate clearly that the gospel is a divider of people even amongst our most intimate relationships. Yet you may be asking, what did Jesus mean in verse 34? I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. We first need to know and be reminded that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and the message of Jesus as reflected in the Sermon on the Mount, is indeed a message of peace. But although the gospel is the message of peace, how we can have peace with God, when people acknowledge or confess Christ, they usually make enemies, even in their own household. So Jesus is saying in this context of mission as followers of Him, that as followers of Jesus... And us being about his kingdom, it's going to cause conflict at times. It's going to cause conflict. Jesus' message and work bring conflict and confrontation at times, even within our own families. When I first became a Christian, I experienced conflict and confrontation from my whole family. (laughs) More like ridicule. I mean, I just was excited about Jesus when you first get saved. I'm just going to many Bible studies like every single night. 
Then I get involved with youth ministry, and I'm pretty much like out the door every night. And as my mom and especially my dad would see me, they'd hear the door opening, and they'd be like, where are you going again? Um, I'm going to a Bible study. And literally, my dad would just start yelling at me, just like, you're going to another Bible study, and just getting all freaked out. It was crazy. And then even if I brought, as a new believer, my Bible in a room with my brother, my brother's sitting there watching TV, and the first thing he says, is that a Bible? I'm like, yeah. Get that Bible out of here. Get out of this room. And I'm just like, whoa, okay. It's like I, I don't know, I brought a gun in the room or something. <laughs> and then the craziest thing happened. I used to pray in our downstairs room where my, this kind of den area where my dad would work, and he'd be there every morning. I'd get up early and pray. I'm in there, the lights are, closed, are dark, and I'm praying, and I hear my dad's footsteps coming down the stairs, and I'm like freaking out. I'm like, oh my gosh, my dad's going to come here. I know it. he's going to catch me praying, and I was like tempted. I'm going to jump up and hide in the closet. <laughs> yeah, talk about fear of rejection. All right, so the Holy Spirit says, nope, you're going to stay on your knees and pray. And I was scared. I was just being obedient to Jesus. And I'm just on my knees praying. And I hear the door open. The lights go on. My dad walks in. He just starts freaking out like, what are you doing? And I'm just praying. And just he's yelling at me. It was as if I'm in the room taking like a bong hit or something. I mean, <laughs> no, I didn't smoke pot. But it was as if like... It was as if I got caught smoking pot or something. I got caught praying. I'm just in a room praying, and my dad comes totally unglued. It was crazy. And yet when Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword, the sword is a picture of real conflict. The sword is figurative language. It's just figurative language being used here. A sword is also a picture of the word of God, truth. Truth is like a sword, and a sword is like a truth. And truth confronts, divides, and cuts to the core. As Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I mean, the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. So Jesus is saying, I'm bringing my sword, my truth, that will confront, that will divide. That will cut to the core so much that the reality will be that even fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, will be against one another. That's that's a sobering truth right there. Obviously what's happening is in the time and in that culture and even in the world today, again, especially in the Middle East, when someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, the core declaration was entailed, the core declaration that was entailed was. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. Not Caesar, not Rome, not Muhammad. And that would cause conflict even in the closest relationships, especially amongst the closest relationships 
such as family. This may be hard to understand for some of us, and maybe not all of us, but probably most of us this is hard for us to understand because we live in an individualistic sort of society. We are called radical Western individualists, and we mostly think of ourselves. And really, what is good for us? What is good for me? The first century world and other parts of the world today, it wasn't like that. It was a communal, family-orientated world. So when someone walked into their home filled with family idols, false gods, and different ideologies and allegiances, and they said before their family or their mom and dad, here's the deal. I was just baptized, and now I pledge allegiance to Jesus as Lord. That would bring division. That would bring real conflict. And in today's world and different parts of the world, that brings real intense persecution. Then right on the heels of what Jesus said in verses 34 through 36 is nothing less than radical. And he goes on to say in verse 37, he's going to bring it even closer to home. Right to our flesh and blood. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus is saying in stark terms, loyalty to him must take precedence. Even over what was the tightest unit at the time, and that was the family. For some of us, family has become the most important thing. Even before Jesus. Without knowing it, we have made family an idol. It's become our God, especially our children. I'm a father of five children. But I have to say, especially in American culture, children are at the center and forefront of most homes. We do everything for our children. It's all about the children. We, the way we raise our children, the children come before our marriages. The children come before all else. And I get it. Our children are our flesh and blood. So all the more we are bent in loving them more than Jesus. That's only natural. But in doing so, there's a very real danger for some of us that put our children way before our marriages, that our marriages can be undermined and mission can be put on a standstill. Because we as parents in American culture, if God calls us to do anything that might be unsafe for our kids or maybe just even uncomfortable for our kids, we won't do it. Because we are so concerned for our children and our children have taken place or a place of lordship in a sense. Jesus is not asking us to be unloving toward or to reject our families. That's not what Jesus is saying. Rather, Jesus is bringing to our attention when our allegiance to Jesus is being challenged by some other love, specifically our families. Families more than any other allegiance 
more than any other allegiance, will challenge our love for Jesus and also challenge the mission of Jesus. More than any other allegiance. Again, this wasn't just a first century problem. It plays out in our own families in certain ways, even though we are an individualistic, orientated culture. So what does Jesus mean when he says, anyone who, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me? Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. When Jesus says, is not worthy of me, this does not mean that we deserve Jesus or merit Jesus or earn Jesus. Nothing we do puts him in a position of owing us anything good. The idea here isn't new with Jesus. The idea is an old idea. You shall have no other gods before me. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament. It's one of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other God before me. It's the call of God that he has always had upon his people, that he has upon us to love him supremely. Remember when Jesus, ha Jesus was asked, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Other gospels also say, and strength. So loving God with your heart and all that you are is the first and greatest command of Jesus. The bottom line, Jesus is saying, love God the Father with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love Jesus more than you love your children, more than you love your parents, surely more than you love anything in this world. Again, Jesus is not commanding us to unlove our family, but keep God in his rightful place. Jesus is telling us something really important that we all need to hear, that I need to hear. He's in a sense saying, I am better than, more satisfying than any other person in your life. I'm more important than any other thing, more important than any other pursuit in your life. And I am to be loved supremely in your life. That Jesus would be our supreme treasure. That we would prefer and treasure Jesus more than parents or children or life. That he has infinite worth for, far above parents and children in life. If you've experienced the grace and goodness and love and salvation of Jesus, you could testify and say amen to this. He has infinite worth above parents and children and life. And we can say, yes, that is true. Yes and amen. Jesus isn't saying this because he is some kind of cosmic egomaniac. It's because God knows due to our brokenness and sin, we are bent. We have a natural bent to loving other lesser things more than God which is not only idolatry, but also we need to be aware of when we have misplaced affections and loves and lesser things, 
whether it's a possession or a person or a spouse or children, we are bound to be brokenhearted. We are bound to be let down. You put all your eggs in that basket into a, your spouse or your children, you are going to be devastated when they let you down. If they ever turn their back on you, you are going to be devastated. It's going to hurt no matter what. But it's not the will of God for our lives to be shipwrecked as a result of that. We were created to love God supremely. And true biblical love is God. True biblical love is not about us. I just want to state that. Here's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. True biblical love is God setting us free from sin, setting us free from self, in order that we could find true satisfaction and joy in loving Him. That is true biblical love. God loved us so much that He went to set us free, set me free from myself, so that I could be set free to enjoy Him and love Him and find my satisfaction and joy in Him. So Jesus is not calling us to love our families poorly. Jesus is calling us to love Him supremely. Amen. And this can be hard and challenging to hear for some of us. But Jesus gives us the key in how to embrace this life of mission and find joy in the next two verses. Jesus says in verses 38 through 39, Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Jesus is saying straight up, if anyone wants to follow me, he must pick up his cross. We cannot serve Christ and be on mission without taking up the cross. This means being crucified to self and bearing his reproach, bearing his disgrace. His original audience knew exactly what Jesus was talking about, what the cross was and what the cross meant. They were in no way at that time thinking about a piece of jewelry. The cross was a place where people died. It's only ever what it meant in the ears of the hearer. It's only what Jesus was referring to. Jesus was referring to death. Death. Pick up your cross and follow me. Jesus was saying in some way a prerequisite for following him was death, is death. He meant death to self, obviously, which can mean all sorts of things for you and I. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Because the kingdoms in conflict are not just the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, but it's also the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. And a major part of becoming a Christian is making the proclamation that Jesus is Lord. 
Jesus is God. And that means us saying, I'm no longer Lord of my life. I'm no longer the God of my life. I'm no longer calling the shots. It's no longer my will be done, but His will be done. That's where we get off the throne of our lives to put Jesus on the throne. Pick up our cross and deny ourselves. And there are many different ways that plays out in our daily lives in relation to our wants, our desires, our wills, and even our dreams. And there are big ways in which this plays out in our lives. And we need to be reminded what 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says. You are not your own. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Honor God with your lives. A lot of life can be lived in the freedom of God's grace within His will, and we get to enjoy life in many ways. But there are times in which our will is contrary to God's will. Maybe more often than not. I can say that for me. It's pretty much every day. There's some contrary, I'm just, my will's contrary to God's will. It's an everyday thing where I'm having to say, not my will, but your will be done in my life. These are Gethsemane moments. And our Lord, and the Lord has taught us, or the Lord's teaching us right now, these Gethsemane moments are opportunities for us to respond and say, not my will be done, but your will be done. After Gethsemane, you know what happened. After in the Garden of Gethsemane, where did Jesus go? He went right to the cross. And that is what it is for us to pick up our cross. Surrendering our wills to God's will. Surrendering our wills to God's will which leads to death, leads to dying to self. Now think about your own life in this context. Maybe there's someone here this morning that's not a Christian, and you have in a, in a very real sense been fighting God, kicking against His will and His love for you as He's been drawing you, as He's been calling you to Himself. And I would say today, today is the day to die to self and to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Don't let another day pass, not a let another moment pass. Even in your seat right now, if that's you, you could cry out and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me and save me right now. I am done fighting you. I'm done kicking against you. I recognize your love. I recognize your goodness. And I surrender my life to Jesus Christ right now. Maybe God is calling you and your family to take a big step of faith in some way that's really scary. Maybe God's calling you to the mission field. Or maybe God's just calling you to take some sort of crazy step of faith as a family and you're wrestling with fear. You're worried. You're worried. What is this going to mean for our children? 
What is this going to mean for our kids? I can't encourage you enough. Surrender your kids. Surrender your family. Surrender your fears to God. And say, not my will, but your will be done. Maybe you're in a relationship you know that's not God's will. And you're holding on to it. Even though you know that God has been speaking to you to trust Him. To trust Him with your future. To trust Him that He has a better plan. And surrender that relationship to Him this morning. Lord, not my will, but Your will be done. Recognize the love and sacrifice of Jesus for you. And stop kicking against the will of God, the love of God. And in act of surrender and in recognition of the cross, say this morning, not my will, but your will be done. Maybe it's time to say to Jesus this morning, your will be done in this area of my life. Whatever area it is that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about or convicting you about, may this be the day that you say your will be done in this area of my life. I can personally testify that there is no greater joy, no greater joy than living a life of surrender unto Jesus. And I'm here to testify there is no greater misery than kicking against God's will and living for self. It's an empty, boring wasted way to live life. That's why Jesus said in the second part of verse 39, whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. This is so true. I love this verse. This is one of my favorite verses. Jesus is simply saying, if you're endeavoring in life to find true happiness and joy by pursuing selfish gains and lesser things, you're going to lose it. If you're trying to live for self and hold on to your little selfish, me-centered, self-orientated life, you're going to lose life. You're going to miss out on what God created you for. How many people have lost or wasted their lives in the pursuit of lesser things? Living for self. You're guaranteed to come up short every time. My biggest regret in life will be if I have wasted my life in Christ. That will be my biggest regret if I live for self and lesser things. I've experienced that a few years back. I've experienced wasting time and not really living wholeheartedly for Christ. And you know what God's put in my heart now? I can never let a year or two years go by ever again. Ever again. I can never waste three or four years again of my life for the, for the glory of Christ. And I pray that conviction stays in me. I pray it grows stronger in me. I pray it grows strong in you that we would not be people who waste our lives living for self in selfish pursuits. Jesus said, if you lose your life for my sake and my kingdom, you will find it. In other words, if we get lost and lose our life, we lose our life in who Jesus is and in the things of his kingdom, 
then truly we have found life and will experience the true abundant life that is found in Christ. That is what we were created for, to know God and to enjoy Him forever. And the flow of chapter 10 ends by Jesus saying in verses 40 through 42, Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose a reward. We can sum up the chapter in these last three verses or sum up the whole chapter by saying mission done God's way will be effective and fruitful mission done God's way will be effective and fruitful people not all not all people but people will receive us and receive the message of God believe it or not when we are living like true disciples followers of Jesus we've been duped and tempted to thinking if we're super cool and I just blend in with culture and look just like them and do all the things they do, then I'm going to win people to Christ. I know the Bible says, be all things to all people. But the truth of the matter is that when we are living in truth and living by the power of the Holy Spirit and we go into the world, people will follow Christ. Not all people. Not all people. Jesus says in verse 40, they will receive you in my name, and when they do, they will receive me and the one who sent me. See how mission works? The Father sent the Son, and the Son also sends us. Jesus came representing the Father, and we go into the world representing Christ. Then Jesus transitions into verse 41 and says, Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. We're just getting right down to the nitty-gritty of mission right here. We as Christians go into the world representing Christ as prophets and as righteous people, sort of speak. I'm not saying we're prophets, but sort of speak. What did a prophet do? A prophet spoke the words of God and declared what was true. What does a righteous person do? They live out the will of God and show what is right and true. So we as believers, as Christians, we go into the world as prophets and righteous people in Christ declaring what is true and demonstrating what is right. Declaring and demonstrating declaring and demonstrating and usually we either fall off the horse on this side or this side either we're all about declaring declaring the gospel declaring truth but we don't demonstrate the truth of God or we fall on this side of the horse we're all about demonstrating the love and grace and goodness of Christ but we don't declare the truth of Christ it's declaring and demonstrating we will draw opposition. We will draw persecution, even amongst family. 
but it will also be effective and fruitful because Christ's kingdom is powerful and there is power in the gospel. The Bible says that there is power in preaching Christ crucified. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's the power of God to save many. When we preach Christ crucified, there is power in the gospel. There is power in the proclamation and demonstration of the gospel. And the reward Jesus spoke about in verse 41 is that some people receive a reward. And their reward is that they will recognize Jesus as Lord and Savior. And they're going to be brought into His eternal blessing. Do you know it says in Corinthians that we as Christians are called ministers of reconciliation? And God uses us as believers to reconcile the world to Himself? Is that radical? Is that amazing? Like God has chosen us to reconcile the world to Himself. And people are going to be brought into His eternal blessing. And that's what's happening in His kingdom. The kingdom is an extension of God's righteous rule. And they are being brought into His gracious blessing. And as we go into the world as prophets who declare what is true, and righteous people who live out what is right, then the world around us will see and be brought into the blessing of the extension of the kingdom, God's righteous rule. And I love how our text ends with a cup of cold water. After some very radical, straight-up, sobering truths about mission, I'm sure all of us could use a cup of cold water right now. I know I could use a cup of cold water right now. Jesus says in verse 42, And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. Jesus says if you live on mission, although it will be tough, it will be tough, hard work, it will be challenging, at times feeling discouraged and overwhelmed, there will also be moments of refreshment. Moments of refreshment like receiving a cup of cold water. Like Jesus, the good shepherd who leads us beside still waters when we need to be refreshed so that we can go back into the battle. Jesus is also saying when you live on mission, I'm always working on both ends. If anyone gives even a cup of cold water, Jesus is saying, I will see that. I will honor that and I will bless that. Why? Because it's never just about us as Christians. God is working on both ends. That's what common grace is, what, what common grace means. He's working on both ends, in believers and unbelievers, with those who are going and those who are receiving. With such a radical, straight-up, sobering text before us today, we need to hear as God's people that God's work is effective and fruitful. In whatever mission context we're in, whether it's overseas or here in our community or whatever mission context, maybe it's for you as a parent. As it says in 1 Corinthians 15.58, I believe this is a word of encouragement for us this morning. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. 
because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I know that's a specific word for some of us this morning. I even believe it's a specific word for some mothers here this morning. Therefore, my dear sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And knowing our labor in the Lord is not in vain, we need to remind you that we are called to be prophets. You're called, hey men and women, you're called to be a prophet. You're called to be righteous people, a righteous person who lives righteously, declaring truth and living out, demonstrating what is true in our homes, in our neighborhoods, our communities, our workplaces, our schools, and places of recreation. This is what the world desperately needs in the times in which we are living. So in closing, how are you currently doing? How can you be doing this in your life right now? I'm sure most of us realize, including myself, how far short we fall to this high calling and what it means to be on mission as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus. I know I personally do. Maybe we're aware of areas in our life how we deny and are ashamed of Jesus and being associated with the name of Christ. Maybe we are aware of loving our families and our children more than Jesus and or loving lesser things more than Jesus. Maybe we are aware of areas in our lives where we are not denying ourselves and picking up our crosses. Maybe we're aware we're not living as prophets and we're discouraged or fearful of declaring the truth. Maybe we're aware that we are not living as righteous people and showing forth righteousness. Our lives are not demonstrating the love, truth, and holiness of Jesus. If any of us identify with any of these areas that we fall short in, I have good news for us. This is an opportunity in the house of God where we can humble ourselves before God, confess our sin, repent, and respond and receive the grace and love of God. Also, I call out, I I really can't encourage all of you, my brothers and sisters, to call out to God today for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit, a fresh baptism of the Holy Spirit of God to empower you to be His faithful servant, His faithful witness, in order that you may live out and declare the gospel in your places and spaces of influence as you live on mission for His glory. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You for Your words this morning, for they are true and for they are good. Though they are heavy words in the context of what it means to be on mission as Your disciples, we receive them as good and beautiful words. Words that will bring us life and joy and words that will give your name glory. I'm asking and praying, Holy Spirit, come in a way that you would enable to cause my brothers and sisters to respond this morning. 
to respond to your love, to respond to your grace, to respond to your goodness, to even respond to the conviction of your Holy Spirit. For repentance is a beautiful thing. The Bible says that repentance, when we repent, that times of refreshing, we are refreshed and we are filled afresh when we repent. So God, help your people, help me, help us to respond. In Jesus' name, amen.